Hello, and welcome back to Off the Deaton Path. I'm Stan Deaton with the Georgia Historical Society, and we welcome you to this podcast for September 21st, 2023. We are broadcasting this week from the Vote Counting Department here at the Georgia Historical Society on the 15th floor of the Jepson House, overlooking beautiful Forsyth Park in downtown Savannah. My guest this week on the podcast is Sidney Milkus. He is the White Burkett Miller Professor in the Department of Politics at the University of Virginia and a faculty fellow at the Miller Center at UVA. He was awarded the Cavaliers Distinguished Teaching Professorship for 2018 through 2020, the highest teaching award at the University of Virginia, which recognizes an eminent scholar for outstanding undergraduate teaching. In 2016-17, he was named the John G. Winant Visiting Professor of American Government at Oxford University. Sid has a B.A. from Muhlenberg College and a Ph.D. in political science from the University of Pennsylvania. His books are many, and they include The President and the Parties, The Transformation of the American Party System Since the New Deal, published in 1993, Political Parties and Constitutional Government, Remaking American Democracy, published in 1999, Presidential Greatness, published in 2000, co-authored with Mark Landy, and most recently, and the one that will form the basis of today's discussion, What Happened to the Vital Center? Presidentialism, Populist Revolt, and the Fracturing of America, published by Oxford University Press in 2022, co-authored with Nicholas Jacobs. My conversation with Sid Milkus begins now. Sidney Milkus, welcome to our podcast. Honored to be here, Stan. You are a political scientist. The title of your book is What Happened to the Vital Center? And I'll get to the subtitle in a minute, but tell me historically... Um, and as a political scientist, what is the what do you mean by the vital center? What is that? Yeah, the the vital center actually, uh, Stan comes um, from a book, uh, a ver- kind of an iconic post-war book by Arthur Schlesinger Jr. called "The Vital Center," and what the book is about is the consensus that was developed in the wake of the New Deal revolution uh, and the Second World War. Um, uh, where uh, uh, the the presidency and politics was essentially, for a time, uh, trans uh, was able to transcend uh, partisanship, uh, and there was a broad agreement among Democrats and Republicans uh, that the country was well served by the New Deal state, the liberal New Deal liberal state, committed to two things: uh, economic security, and the the centerpiece of that is the Revolutionary Social Security Program, which became the biggest, and I, and I believe still is the biggest program in government, uh, and, um, and, that, and also the national security state, which is really, um, begins during World War II, but is, is really um, uh, fleshed out by Harry Truman dur- during his presidency, uh, which is basically uh, um, portrays the United States as the leader of the free world. Uh, and we're in this all-consuming struggle with the Soviet Union. Um, and, and so for a time, um, Democrats and Republicans were committed to this welfare state and national security state. Um, and something that illustrates uh, that, stand is that uh, the first Republican elected since Roosevelt is Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, and nobody really knew. <laughs> it was a mystery. What is Dwight Eisenhower? Is he a Democrat? Is he a Republican? Uh, and, of course, he was a, a very, uh, you know, important general during World War II. Um, and the Democrats tried to get him to run in 1948. 52, he runs as a Republican. Uh, but to get the nomination, he has to be, beat out Mr. Republican, William Howard, uh, Robert uh, uh, Taft. Almost, I'm going back <laughs> to, the, right. to 1912. Yeah. That's, that's what you do, right, Stan, when you study it's history. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, 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 like, rip through history. I was right there with you, you with William Howard Taft, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I, go, sure. I, I, usually, I can transcend centuries mm-hmm, <laughs> if, you, mm-hmm. if, if you want. So Mr. Yeah. Republican Robert Taft, right. who was very anti-New Deal, and particularly when it came to foreign policy and wanted us to go back to the kind of neo-isolationism of the 19th. 20s. Yeah, he, he was what we would have called a rock-ribbed Republican, right? Rock-ribbed. He, he was very, very right-wing, Left, even for that time. Right, and, and limited government in domestic affairs and limited government in foreign affairs. Mm-hmm. And uh, the re- one of the reasons I think Eisenhower ran in 52, particularly in the Republican Party, was to defeat uh, Taft for the nomination because he believed it was very important we had a bipartisan commitment. Uh, to what's what's oftentimes called international liberalism, mm-hmm. this commitment to the United States being the leader of the free world, and uh, particularly uh, in the um, 
at the at the uh, the vanguard of the Cold War and 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 um, in the fight against and, communism and the fight against communism, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. which Truman really establishes. So and and in addition to that, uh, Eisenhower uh, expands Social Security, uh, and we have the biggest probably the biggest domestic program we've ever had, the international highway system, mm-hmm. which really transformed America. I think mm-hmm. brought it brought it together all republican yeah. ideas right all, uh, well not social security no, but, no, but but it was or, but it was or is it by fair a republican president but yeah a very affirmative bipartisan. commitment to uh the, the uh, to domestic uh action by by the government so in a way what i what i think about eisenhower is he i think the most important thing about eisenhower for better or worse is he gave bipartisan uh a confirmation of, of the he bestowed bipartisan legitimacy on the New Deal. Which it didn't have. It didn't right? have. I mean, it certainly didn't have. Yeah, you talk about consensus, but the truth is Republicans since 1932 had really, uh, yeah, and many Southern Democrats, really opposed the New Deal, right? Oh, yeah. They saw it as this wild socialistic revolution. Yeah, particularly um, starting in the late 30s when Roosevelt does the court packing plan mm-hmm. and the purge campaign mm-hmm. and then this executive reorganization program uh, to establish the modern presidency as an institution, a conservative coalition forms of Southern Democrats and Republicans, which is very much opposed uh, to the New Deal, mm. um, but really doesn't begin uh, to to, uh, to penetrate, uh, to show vulnerabilities to the New Deal mm-hmm. uh, until until the uh, late 60s. Uh, and the, the kind of the culmination of this uh, vital center was the Kennedy presidency. Uh, and uh, Kennedy, uh, of course, was a strong cold warrior, very popular, uh, and he would, he gave a speech, uh, I believe it was at a, uh, a conference of experts. He would have experts in all the time. He considered himself an intellectual. Um, and he had, just like Roosevelt had a brain trust, mm-hmm. Kennedy kind of had a brain trust. He gave a speech where he said, you know, for much of our history, we've, we've been divided by party. Social movements have, have stirred us up. But now we've reached a stage of consensus. And basically... We have uh, common commitments in domestic and foreign policy. So now the order of the day is, admi- is administration. That administration, in a sense, is going to supplant politics as the major responsibility uh, of the government because we're not fighting these partisan battles anymore. Uh, intellectually, that was given confirmation by a guy named David Bell, uh, a sociologist at Harvard, who uh, wrote a, a, a book called The End of Ideology. And I remember Stan wow. reading this book as an undergraduate, uh, and, and I was really engaged by politics. And I said, "God, I'm too young <laughs> for, for the end of history." Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So that's the idea yeah. of the vital center. Um, well, let me ask you a question because, um, as you probably know, um, I think historians would say, and, and maybe maybe political scientists, that the American people have historically been what we call declensionists, right? Mm-hmm. That they always feel that society in the here and now has declined from mm-hmm. some golden age, right? From some mean that was wonderful. I mean, we see it now, of course, and, and we literally see it in, in, in the, the Make America Great Again slogan, but even... In the 70s, right, there's a sense that the 50s were better. And there's a sense in the, you know, that, well, let's go back to the time of Reagan. So I, my question is, where I'm going with this is, was there really a time of consensus in American politics? Or is that wishful thinking looking mm. back? I, I think to some degree it was, it's, it's a nostalgia. Um, but I think it was, it was really there. And I think, Stan, this uh, uh, post-World War II period, is exceptional in American history. Mm-hmm. That this is the one time where there was this kind of consensus, where politics, if you will, was subordinated to administration. Um, and but uh, underneath, things are churning. Mm-hmm. Under, there were, there's real battles going on in the Republican Party mm-hmm. over this so-called new republicanism that Eisenhower celebrates. It's international. It's right? it's international. Yeah. Yeah. There's also, of course the civil rights movement that is beginning to take form. Uh, and it crests in the 1950s. Uh, it begins to crest in the 1950s and then becomes very strong in the 1960s. So I think when Kennedy says, you know, we've reached the end of politics, so to speak, uh, he's, su- he's surprisingly unaware <laughs> of some, some, some cracks in the foundation mm-hmm. that will uh, emerge with a vengeance uh, before before he's assassinated in, in, in 1963. The March on Washington 
is directed to John Kenny, wake up. <laughs> yeah. You know, we are not at the end. Yeah. We are not at the end of history. Well, in the civil rights movement, it's interesting, um, correct me if I'm wrong too, but you mentioned the coalition of conservatives across party lines, because I think what's important is that at that time there were liberal Republicans. There, oh, right? yeah. It's like a dinosaur now, yeah. which we'll talk about in a minute. I want, I want to hear your thoughts about that. But the idea that conservatives, Southern Democrats and probably conservative Republicans, probably opposed some aspects of civil rights. Certainly white Southern Democrats did for all kinds of reasons. O- almost most of them u- almost uniformly. Yeah, uniformly and, did. And, Richard yeah. Russell. I was just going to say. People, Strom Thurmond. Yeah, I'm right. down here in Georgia now. So yeah, absolutely. Richard Russell, yeah. But, but the Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, received wide bipartisan support mm-hmm. across the aisle, right? There were liberal Republicans who's always yeah. supported the civil rights movement, right? Yeah, I think the last time I checked, I may be a little off on this, but a greater proportion of Republicans voted for the 64 Civil Rights Act than Democrats. I think that's right. Yeah. I think that's right. So there was, there was a, a at this time, uh, both parties were catch-all parties in that there were, they were very diverse mm-hmm. um, philosophically and both had uh, important, important wings that were very, very different from each other. So, of course, the North-South division mm-hmm. in, in the uh, Democratic Party, but in the, in the Republican Party, you have the Northeast uh, in some te- in some tension with the Republicans in the Midwest and particularly in the West, mm-hmm. and of course that's where a kind of new conservatism emerges with Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I want to talk about. So, yeah. uh, let me ask you to answer your question. Let's let's presume there was a vital center at one time. What happened to it? Yeah, I um, it it fell apart um, in in the um, in the late 1960s, and and two two. Th- Two huge fault lines in American politics uh, led um, to this major crack up uh, of the country in the 1960s. One, of course, was the civil rights movement um, reaches its culmination, and you have the enactment of uh, three important civil rights bills, the 64 Civil Rights Act, uh, which is about public accommodation, essentially. The 65 Act, which is about voting rights. And then a lot of, a lot of people don't pay enough attention to the 1960 Act, 68 Act, excuse me, which was the hardest one to pass, which mm-hmm. was the Fair Housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and in fact, housing segregation becomes one of the most controversial versions of the Civil Rights Revolution. Uh, and um, what, for a while, there's, as you were saying before, Stan, there's very strong consensus in the country for civil rights. But that begins to change as the movement becomes more radical. Uh, and in, uh, and this is the Vietnam War is part of this, which is the second thing that really leads to the crack up, those two, those two things converging. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you get Stokely Carmichael, who, who, um, who um, defeated John Lewis <laughs> to head SNCC, the, the, um, um, a very important civil rights group, uh, and he begins to chant black power and there's a defense of violence. Malcolm X emerges. Black separatism. And then um, this doesn't happen until the 70s, but you get um, busing. Become, things like busing become important. But it's particularly uh, the black power movement and the, and the defense of violence. And then just think about this, Stan. We have riots all over the country from the summer of 65 to the summer of 19. Just imagine. Uh, and I'm old enough to remember what these things look like. The summer of what? What was the second one? Uh, 65 to win? 68. 68, And remember yeah. after Martin Luther King's right. assassination, mm-hmm. they almost bur- Washington almost gets burned down. Right. Lyndon yeah. Johnson, somebody, uh, Horace Busby, who, who told me he put Lyndon Johnson, got Jim, Lyndon Johnson up in the morning and put him to bed at night, yeah. <laughs> told me when they had that uh, riot in Washington, why Lyndon Johnson's looking out on the burning, and he says, get in touch with the, with the military, the National Guard, and tell them do not... Um, do not uh, undertake a massacre here in the yeah. United States. Because Johnson was really pro-civil rights. And he, and he was baffled by yeah. this reaction, right? Yeah. He didn't understand why all these big bills had been passed and seemingly then yeah. uh, the, 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 the black neighborhoods yeah. exploded in protests in Watts in 1965 and Detroit and all these places and a yeah. lot of northern cities, yeah. right? Yeah, and, and uh, Watts is particularly interesting because L.A. was, I think it's like the year before, 64. I may be off on the exact year, but it was, it was deemed one of the most successful diverse cities in America mm-hmm. where civil rights had succeeded. Mm-hmm. And yet you get a huge, that's, you're right, that's the first, that's a significant moment in the, in the shift uh, of the civil rights moment, movement caused by, instigated by police violence. Mm-hmm. 
Which we've become more familiar Which with Which we've today. become a little more familiar with. Yeah. Yeah, the more things change. What the French say, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. So, so what you're saying, if I hear you correctly, is that as there begins to be social unrest in America, in the streets, both because of civil rights and because of Vietnam, there's a fracturing. The vital center breaks apart. Right. Yeah, over, over, uh, over uh, the, the foundational question of American identity. Who is an American? This has always been... Uh, uh, at, 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 the, at the root of our most serious struggles in, in the United States. I mean, you see it during Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. You see it during the Progressive Era. Uh, and, and, and then it emerges again in, in the 1960s. A lot of times in our history, it's been buried. We keep it off the agenda, so to speak. Franklin Roosevelt tried very hard to keep civil rights off his agenda, focusing on economic security. But whenever it emerges, it divides the country and particularly in the 1960s because of the strength of, of, the, of the civil rights movement uh, in the 1960s, which led to a powerful counter movement. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't, I don't th- you know, um, I always wondered whether uh, Lind- it's, there's, this, um, there's this saying that's attributed to Lyndon Johnson that I think, um, trying to think who, I can't remember who attributes it to him, that when he signed the civil rights bill, he said, we just lost the South. I cannot find the smoking gun on that stuff. Oh, really? If you find it, uh, you and I are going to write an article together. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't really yeah. think Lyndon Johnson believed that. In fact, uh, in, uh, in the 1964 campaign, one of the first things he did was come down to Georgia mm-hmm. and talk about the importance of this bill. Mm-hmm. It was really speaking truth to power in a way that was very courageous and something Kennedy never, yeah. never deemed to do. Uh, and I really think he, could pick, he felt he could pick the conscience of the South and they would go for the civil, you know, the civil rights, which seemed to make perfect sense mm-hmm. by the 1960s. Uh, but what did him in was Vietnam, that <laughs> he didn't anticipate mm-hmm. uh, Vietnam. And Vietnam would, um, really compounds the, the, um, the, uh, the struggles in the country um, um, because um, it, the anti-war movement really alienates uh, the white working class. Uh, and so that moves the resistance from the south uh, to the north. And this is before busing, because a lot of these um, working, white working class people had lost their sons in Vietnam. Uh, and there was an anti-war move after, I think it was Kent State, after Kent State, there was an anti-war movement in New York City, supported by uh, the very liberal Mayor John Lindsay, who was a Republican, <laughs> by mm-hmm. the way, going back to your point, mm-hmm. and the construction workers beat the hell out of him, right. to be yeah. quite frank, mm-hmm. uh, and celebrated, and Nixon was their hero. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think Vietnam was just about patriotism. So we got American identity uh, converging with a battle over patriotism, broadly understood, uh, and the anti-war movement was arguing America is no longer a city on a hill. It's been tested in Vietnam and, and found wanting. Uh, and that kind of language uh, really uh, upset uh, the white working class, uh, uh, because they uh, they had they had they were deeply committed to the United States, and and you know most of the unions really supported Johnson on Vietnam. George Meany was a strong mm-hmm. head of the AFL CIO, mm-hmm. a strong mm-hmm. support. So I think um, I, I think Stan, the combination of the civil rights movement uh, and uh, the Vietnam War, those two. Explosion in those two areas is what really caused the crack up in the country. And um, like the end of Reconstruction and like the end of the Progressive Era, uh, it, it, uh, there's, there are reverberations through our own political time from the 1960s. So I think this is the beginning of the vital center falling apart. And is, that the, is it the beginning of identity politics and the culture wars? I think it's, it, it, I, it's not the beginning of that. We've always had that in, mm-hmm. in America. Mm-hmm. But it, it puts it on the agenda in a way that it can no longer be removed and is like we're not going to have you know the, the compromise of 1877 and jim crow established except a consensus in the north and the south that that uh the jim crow system is, is legitimate separate but equal the the, the uh, progressive uh, uh movement in the country is too strong now for that so i think it's uh whereas before stan it was episodic i think it's become a routine a routine a routine part of American politics now. Is it fair to say that when you say the vital center, are you talking about political moderates? Is that what that means? 
Yeah, I'm talking about um, the people who might be Republican or Democrat, Democrat but, but yeah, they've come yeah. together in the middle. Yeah, that's there was, gone. There right? used to be a lot of over. If you look at graphs, like political scientists tend right. to it, sometimes it makes my it puts me to sleep. But graphs are very revealing. So if you look at graphs of Democrats and Republicans in Congress before the late '60s, there's a lot of overlap. Yeah, and in fact, that overlap goes up uh, uh, through um, the um, Reagan presidency, and, th and then things really began. Uh, to sort out and, and the Gingrich revolution yeah. which really takes place uh, uh, in 1994 when the Republicans take control of Congress uh, uh, for the first time since 1954 they right. take control of Congress yeah 40 years uh, so the Gingrich revolution is, is really important so now if you look at a graph there is no overlap well so there's no Democrat more conservative than uh, any Republican and there's no Republican more liberal than any Democrat right. you're, 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 as you were talking about before John Lindsay was, 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 would have been well to the left mm -hmm. of a lot of Democrats. Well, what you're describing um, is, I, I mean, isn't there an argument to be made that it, that it was 1994? It was Newt Gingrich mm -hmm. and the Republican ideology at that time that said compromise is only going to help mm -hmm. the other side. Mm -hmm. What you're talking about with the vital center coming out of World War II, the idea that, let's say, in 19, I'll make this up, in 1971, <laughs> We've got a Republican President Nixon, but we've got a Democratic Congress. As you said, from 52 to 94, we had a Democratic majority right, in right. Congress. But in order to get anything passed, Republicans had to meet the Democrats where they were because they had a majority. Right. And so there was bipartisan legislation. No one said, not no one, but Democrats didn't say, if we pass this bill, Richard Nixon is just going to get reelected. So we're not going to pass this bill. Right, or right. Richard Nixon would say, I'm not going to compromise because that's only going to help the Democrats. That holds more or less, right, until Bill Clinton. Yeah. Bill Clinton brings out, I mean, tell me I'm wrong on all this, but doesn't yeah. Bill Clinton bring out Newt Gingrich? It's like, scorched earth now. We're not going to compromise if nothing gets passed. That's yeah. great because if he, if a Democratic president has to work with a Republican congressman and something yeah. passes, it only helps the Democrat yeah. or vice versa. That's a great point. You, you know, we forget how much Nixon worked with the with the Democratic Party. Yeah, he had to. That Nixon really was the first one to establish a national affirmative action mm -hmm. program with the Philadelphia. The Environmental the Protection Agency, right? Yeah, when I tell my students, to, yeah. who, uh, here's a question, guys, for you. <laughs> right. <laughs> who created the Environmental Protection Absolutely. Agency? Absolutely. Richard Nixon. Yeah. So um, uh, he was very conservative on the social issues, mm -hmm. but, but compromised uh, with the Democrats uh, in a lot of other important issues. So this is a really this is a really interesting thesis you have <laughs> that Bill Clinton well, brings out. But I think you're right. So we'd have to think about why, because Clinton, when he was elected, celebrated a third way politics. That was what the Democratic right. Leadership Council was about. Mm -hmm. So he's going to restore sanity, so to speak, uh, to the Democratic Party and move it to the center. Back to the center. But I think uh, what what I think supports your argument is he didn't. That was the promise of the 1992 campaign, but he didn't live up to that promise. And to some degree he did, his economic program was, was pretty moderate. But then um, Hillary Clinton in the West Wing was given free reign to push a really strong, comprehensive health healthcare care plan. Yeah. And that did it, and right? That, and that did it. That did it. Because this, is, this, had been, it, you know, this has been the holy grail of the Democratic Party since Harry Truman. Absolutely. And, and, uh, the Repu and it's the Republicans, Ben Y, right? It's, right, right, right. So I, th and, and, and what adds to the aggravation probably, Stan, is he's Southern, right? He's, he's, he's Southern and he's got that immoral thing, he's right? Got, I mean, he, he, and, he's and he's, flowers and he's got that, Arkansas. exactly. So yeah. he's got those cultural, yeah. uh, the cultural baggage that right. became so controversial. Yeah, right. he, he inhaled, but he didn't smoke. Well, and the, and the moral majority. <laughs> oh, he didn't. Of course, have, I forget yeah. what he said about he, 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 he smoked, but he didn't inhale. And he didn't yeah. have sex with, <laughs> with, with Lindsay. Right. Yeah. So I, I think that's a great point, Stan. That that combination. And, uh, and, and it's Gingrich, never put back and, together, right? And, and Gingrich was a brilliant tactician, and brought that together, in, in a way. I, I remember meeting. Um, I was doing interviews for a book I was writing at the time, uh, uh, on the. Uh, Post New, De it was on the New Deal and its legacy, and I was doing the post New Deal part. And I was really interested in whether the Reagan Revolution meant the end of the New Deal. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so I went and talked to, had an interview with Newt Gingrich, who was this up and coming Republican. And I want to say this was 1992, Stan. Mm. And he was telling me, you know, um, Republicans are just accepting these, these crumbs from the table. We're, we've accepted being a minority. We need to do something about that. Mm -hmm. and we have to re engage the country in a debate about the liberal state. And, and he not, not only talked the talk, but he did the walk. He was a great organizer. 
and put together this, uh, I think it was called the Conservative Opportunity Society, but I, I may be wrong about that, um, and, uh, and, 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 and kind of got some grassroots support for this. And, uh, and then put out this manifesto for the 19, made, it a, made the 94 election a national election. Right. So I, I think that, so, you know, the Republicans had made great progress at the presidential level, uh, beginning with Nixon, but especially with Reagan. Mm -hmm. But I think you're right, until 94, when you get the Gingrich Revolution, and then the Republican, particularly the House, becomes a center of incubating conservative activists, or where conservative activists go when they're going to be public officers. That's really an important stage two yeah. of the Reagan Revolution, I think, the completion of the Reagan Revolution. Well, and of course, remember, too, in, 90, in 92, Pat Buchanan gets up and makes that speech that the, the soul of America is yeah. at stake in, this neck, in the 92 election yeah. um, and it becomes politics. It seems to me, I mean, just looking back 30 years, it seems to me that it's then that politics becomes this life-and-death struggle. It's like when the other side wins, we're yeah. all doomed, right? Right, right. And, and then so we're going to fight tooth and nail and we're not going to compromise. We're not yeah. going to come together in the yeah. middle for anything. Uh, you're going to have to get everything passed with a bare majority, which is what's yeah. happened. Right. Yeah. And he challenged Bush's uh, in the primaries. Yeah. In 92, which right. really hurt Bush. As, as Ross Perot did. As, well, I guess well, Ross Perot was a third party. Yeah, he was an independent. Well, it really wasn't a party. <laughs> it was yeah, it was an independent. It was just yeah. Ross Perot. It was just Ross Perot. Oh, sure, yeah. But, but he got like 24% of the vote, yep. which is the biggest right. percentage of vote of yep. third party since uh, Theodore yep. Roosevelt. 19%, I yeah, think. Yeah. yeah, right. But, uh, you know, Pat, uh, in, in spite of the fact uh, that he challenged Bush, mm -hmm. um, they gave him a prime spot in the 1992 convention. They he sure was did. on... Um, um, Prime TV, I think he gave a speech around 9 o'clock. Yep. Ronald Reagan didn't get on the stage uh, until after 11 o'clock. Yeah. Imagine that. I know. So, you know, Reagan, I think, is a really important conservative. Mm -hmm. Pushes the country to the right. Yeah. But, but Reagan never considered, he loved America too much. He, couldn't, he didn't believe Democrats were an existential threat. Right, yeah. To him. He thought the government was the problem. Sure. Get government under control. Americans are great. But you're right. This is uh, in, the, in the 90s. The more, I, the more we talk about this, Stan, the more I think you and I need to write a book <laughs> yeah. on that. But I, but I think it's in the 90s uh, where there's this uh, new understanding where uh, these, uh, the people on the other side are not just your political opponents. They're an existential threat mm -hmm. to your way of life. Yeah. And this is also, of course, uh, simultaneously when we see the rise of Rush Limbaugh on the radio and Fox News. Yeah. Right? The, the sense yeah. that the media has always been liberal and left and that it's time for, with the proliferation of cable news with CNN, right. that uh, it was time for conservatives to have a national voice. Yeah. Now, some would argue um, that, you know, Watergate happens in the early in, in the early seventies, and that was the coming together of the vital center for the last time. Republicans and Democrats yeah. were ready to impeach Richard Nixon. Were ready yeah. to launch these investigations. Mm in a way that I think we can all agree that this, that wouldn't happen now. Nixon right. didn't have Fox News, it right? Didn't, it didn't happen instead. <laughs> yeah, it didn't yeah. happen twice. It didn't happen right. twice, right. right. And and the sense that, you know, to, in today's politics, Richard Nixon w wouldn't be seen as having done anything wrong, right? Yeah. There was some, there was some partisanship uh, regarding Watergate until they found the tapes. Right. Uh, and the smoking gun is what killed mm -hmm. Nixon. And when Barry Goldwater heard that, and he went, it was Barry Goldwater who went to Nixon and told them. Yeah. It's the game's the up. One of the most conservative Republicans of all yeah. went to him and said, you, you don't game, have the support. G game's up. Yeah, yeah. So Which wouldn't happen anymore, yeah, right? So I mean, <laughs> yeah. So everything doesn't happen. These are great points you're making, Stan. Historians are always too nuanced for me. You know? <laughs> Things fell apart in the 60s, and they're still apart. You know, they're yeah, still, yeah. But it, it, it weeds, it, it wends its way through the country. It doesn't happen all at once. Yeah, sure. And there's still respect for constitutional forms and principles during Watergate. Uh, that, that are no longer, that have been weakened considerably uh, since then. So it's and, I think, and I do agree. I think you're pers you've persuaded me, at least for now. Uh, we may have to do a postscript on this show. You okay. Know? Uh, <laughs> for yeah. now, that the, that, the, uh, that the Gingrich Revolution is really, really an important part of this. And remember, these guys are all 60s guys. <laughs> you know, one of the things we have to get rid of, to, to, I think, to calm things down the country is the baby boom. Yeah. <laughs> because these people all had their formative political experience in the 60s, and that was a crazy time mm -hmm. in the country. So it's safe to say the vital center has never really been put back together. I, I think it's, it's safe it's to It's really say. gone now. Yeah, as you say, there's been times where it looked like it, it could be put back together. The, you know, the, the, the Clinton presidency, uh, Clinton was overwhelmingly reelected. Uh, and even uh, during his impeachment proceedings uh, with Monica Lewinsky, it's a little bit of a parallel with, with uh, former President Trump and yeah. the, the, uh, with, 
when they uh, in, uh, impeached when he became more unpopular, more popular sure, during the impeachment sure. proceedings. But, and, and as but, we speak, they're about to launch an impeachment uh, yeah. proceeding against President yeah. Biden, and there are those who argue well, that yeah. will only make him more popular it'll, because historically yeah, he, he that's what happens. Probably right? hoping it'll it'll happen yeah, right? to him. Right? It's, it's historically often yeah, what happens, yeah. and this is a podcast about history, despite <laughs> the fact we're veering into politics. But we're talking about well, historical. There is politics. political history, right? Absolutely, there's political history. I mean, I'm a political so scientist. Yeah. Let, let me go back a little bit now, mm-hmm. um, in terms of 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 your work. Um, there are those who, um, well, I, w- I, I want to start with you again. You wrote in the preface to your book, What Happened to the Vital Center? You said that the current events we're living through are, quote, a dangerous culmination of political developments that had been winding through political life in the U.S. for almost a century. Mm-hmm. How so? Well, I, I say almost a century uh, because I think the progressive era is a really important time in American history. We have these, you know, these moments in American history that are um, more uh, um, transformative uh, than than most times in America. At least till recently, everything's every day seems transformative Doesn't now. Happen. And and one one thing that happens um, politically that I think is very important to contemporary politics is the attack on political parties during the Progressive Era. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt's Progressive Party campaign of 1912 is a war on the party organizations, which he says are de- as decentralized, patronage-based organizations are holding the country back from becoming a great nation. For, for the sake of our audience, who may not be historians, all, uh, when it was the progressive era? What time are we talking about? Uh, 1900 to 1920, I think. Is okay, so roughly 100 Some people years ago. say late 1890s, yeah, but yeah, okay. I think r- roughly 1900 to mm-hmm. 1920. Okay, go ahead. Uh, and uh, so that, one, his cause, Celeb, in that campaign was the direct primary um, because he tried to be nominated, come back for one. Uh, what is the direct primary? The, the direct uh, primary is um, uh, the election that you have to decide who the candidate of the party will be in the general election. Which is what we have now. Which is what we have now. Right. But before the progressive era, there were no primaries. And in fact, we're the only country that has primaries. They, from time to time, they've been tried in other countries. I think Israel had them for mm-hmm. a little while. But we're really the only country who makes our decisions about who runs in the general election through these direct primaries where the people themselves or those who come out and vote in the primaries decide. Which you've got to make that distinction because only about 30 percent exactly. of the eligible Exactly. We, we'll come back to the primary. Okay. But before that, it was chosen by political convention, right? Okay. The, the right. smoke-filled room, and I'm putting right. quotes around that. And, you know, primaries uh, are pretty well developed at the um, congressional and state and local level. Um, by the end of the progressive era, by the 1920s. But the presidency remains a mixed system. So you have about 13 primaries, but most of the states still have party conventions where the parties, uh, heavily influenced by the, by the party leaders at the state and local level, uh, decide who's going to be the nominee. Who now, are politicians, business people, and businessmen, yeah, of course, at that officials. time. Yeah, public and, officials. and this is considered terribly undemocratic. Right. Um, but now, in retrospect, <laughs> yeah. that, that we see what the complete deterioration of the party organization means, uh, they're, they're consi- people um, think of them as the gatekeepers of American politics, mm-hmm. who, who, um, who uh, had a, a, a beneficial effect on the presidential selection sh- system. This is very important to my profession by providing some peer review, <laughs> you know, some, right. some, some people who really know politics and probably know something about the candidates who make the judgments, and they're, they're important. Uh, uh, Madison said, uh, when he, uh, about characterized the Constitution as, as a system of successive filtrations, you know, that there, there, there were office, there were institutions put in place to refine and enlarge the public views. Parties weren't on Madison's mind, but in the 1830s, during the Jacksonian era, when it looked like Jackson might uh, turn out to be the tribute <laughs> of, right, yeah. of American people. Yep. The party systems put in to put some boundaries around people like Jackson to prevent Jackson from becoming well, the Napoleon of America. Right, you know? sure. And 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 one argues that we're talking about primaries. That now, what the primaries have resulted in, uh, and we and we have seen this repeatedly. Right, is that when people run for office, whether Democrat or Republican, you have to go through the primary process, and what that forces you to do is to appeal to the extremes yeah, in your party. Well, right? what we call um, euphemistically the basis yeah. <laughs> of the parties. Right. Which that, are, which are you know, lo- the most loyal party members and often um, have close connections 
to social movements and social activists. So, right. Uh, and, you know, their social movements are really important, but do you want them dominating your presidential selection, selection process? It makes it impossible to establish a cons- that kind of consensus. Well, and because about. we often hear, to come back to the title of your book, yeah. you often hear that once you, once you skirt through the primary process, you have to tack back to the middle to appeal to that supposedly yeah. broad center of the American people that, that, the, that the mass of the American people, you can agree or disagree, are still more moderate, I'll use that word, yeah. than either party, yeah. and that you have to get elected. I don't know if that's true. Do you agree I, with that? I, I, think it, I think it was a lot truer before the 1990s than it is now. I, used, right. I think for a while, uh, zealous partisanship was driven by elites, and it really hadn't filtered down to public opinion. But I think now uh, the country is consumed by partisanship, mm-hmm. which doesn't mean that the base isn't a little more zealous than those who, who are, you know, to the, to the left and right of the base. Mm-hmm. But there are very few, the voices of moderation in American politics now are very frail, uh, I, I think. So, so go back. So in 1912, Theodore Roosevelt is oh, yeah. running. Sorry, at, we got. No, 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 I did We that. hurtled through history. What, what happened? <laughs> oh, so, so Theodore Roosevelt is running as, a, it's called the Bull Moose Party, but it was, it was uh, formerly known as the Progressive Party. Right. He was the third party progressive candidate, and he's pushing for what we would think of as more democratic reforms. What, what you might, yeah, what he called uh, pure democracy, mm-hmm. direct democracy, mm-hmm. unfiltered democracy, right. where you sweep the intermediary institutions. Get rid of those party elites. Let the people decide Let who the people they want decide. to run for president. And the president was, was, the, was, the, was the ultimate prize, right? The president, he, 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 his ambition for the president. And then before Theodore Roosevelt, the presidency is very, a very modest, weak office. 19th century is dominated by the Congress. That's Hard for us to understand. With the exception of Abraham Lincoln. With the, well, right. when there were crises, right. So right. you have, you know, when, during crises, you have a strong presidency. Andrew, uh, Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, and especially Lincoln. And especially Lincoln. But those are episodic. So right. since Civil War is over, the presidency, as Lincoln cre- right. constructed, it was dismantled. And he mm-hmm. was in support of that before he was uh, assassinated. The 20th century, beginning with Theodore Roosevelt and Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, it begins to uh, become a, a, a stronger office. So mm-hmm. um, Roosevelt... Uh, Theodore Roosevelt says the president must become. This is. I always wonder what he means by this stand. The, the president must become the steward of the public welfare. And it's, you know, I'm trying. I'm not very good at putting on his New York aristocratic accent. Uh, Roosevelt, right? Yeah, yeah. T.R. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so he wanted. Uh, and the direct. And the direct. Uh, but the steward had to have a direct take his orders from the people, so to speak. So Theodore Roosevelt believed in the recall of the should have a recall possibility for the presidency really so that that was somehow different from the the impeachment process oh yes the people should decide not Mm. not the congress wouldn't that be something (laughs) no he welcomed when when he when his presidency uh uh, uh, experienced storms he welcomed just impeach me well yeah my day (laughs) yeah and and the 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 political recall process that you're talking about was a progressive reform yeah. right that happened during this 20 years you're just you're talking about right yeah so the these progressive ideas stronger presidency um, uh, rooted in, in public opinion uh, really begin during the progressive era there's some there's some pushback in the 1920s when the con- conservative Republicans come back I- into power but not completely but the two two key moments after this Stan are and we haven't talked about the New Deal but in the uh, in the ni- in the 1930s, Franklin Roosevelt consolidates the modern presidency and turns it into an institution. So we have the West Wing, we have the executive office of the president. So the office is no longer, uh, um, the presidency is no longer just an office, it's an institution now. And it's really grown to become a government unto itself uh, with considerable unilateral powers. Uh, so you get a, so the, the modern presidency, the steward of the public welfare, that becomes a, a, an enduring part of American politics in the 1930s. And then with the 1960s, this steward of the public welfare is pulled into the vortex of partisan politics. And you get the completion of this move for direct democracy in the six, late 60s and early 70s with the so-called McGovern-Fraser reforms. Uh, and the McGovern-Fraser reforms uh, 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 re- completely uh, um, uh, dis, uh, take away the powers of the of the party convention and uh, the, the powers of the state and local party leaders we're talking about before the gatekeepers mm-hmm. to make the nomination and in in their place are is is this primary 
and to some degree participatory participatory caucus system mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. we have now. That we had a mixed system till the 70s, but that now. In, in, with the McGovern-Fraser reform. Remember George McGovern, who was the first, was the head of a reform commission in the Democratic Party, runs, you know, is nominated by the Democratic Party through these, these primaries in 1972, and then he loses a landslide to Nixon. Uh, it starts on the Democratic side, but the Republicans say, hey, you know, this is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I think we should do this too. And particularly Ronald Reagan benefited from the primaries. Yep. So, so by the 1970s, you've got very strong presidency connected to a plebiscitory uh, kind of uh, media churning political process. And that's a very combustible combination. President, pres executive prerogative, powerful presidency uh, that becomes the weapon of, of a kind of, uh, of, the, of the most um, zealous members of the political, of the political party. Uh, of, and and uh, th that I think is that this kind of presidentialism I think is at the root of of many of the problems. I mean, we could talk about social media, we, but institutionally, this, this, connection, this connection of the presidency uh, and partisanship, and I would add social activism because of the direct primaries, is, is a very explosive one. So that's why you call it a dangerous culmination. You, you'd not see this as, a, as a, a strong presidency linked to social activism and participatory democracy. These are not good things. Um, you know, I, you put me in a difficult <laughs> position here. <laughs> You're not Feel free to sidestep How reactionary question. are you? Well, yeah, you, you say yeah. they're a dangerous culmination. Yeah, they're yeah, dangerous yeah. because. Yeah. They're, Why? Well, they're, they're dangerous because I think um, Madison was right that an unfiltered democracy, um, there may be, I think, populism, you know, that everybody we talk about, it's on the tip of everybody's tongue now. I think populism is a good thing. The Constitution is, is, is really designed to suppress populism. Mm -hmm. And from time to time, and, may, and now may it be one of those times, um, it, it's important to break through uh, the barriers established by the Constitution. And every major change in American politics has challenged the constitutional forms as they, as they exist at that time. Every one of the major changes. Except for and one, and I'm going to ask you about this, okay. and that's okay. the Electoral College. Is, is it ironic? And I'm asking that. It's just why. Isn't it ironic that the party that has um, lost the popular vote, right, in, in every popular election since since 1998, except for once in 2004, benefits yes, seven from the of presidency. the last eight, right? Seven of the last eight, they benefit, and and the party now driven, I think we all agree, by populism, right? Mm -hmm. The Republican Party, it, it's certainly a populism different from from the left. Uh, have benefited tremendously by this anti-majoritarian mm. electoral college. Yeah. Is that safe to say? Um, That's how they've achieved the presidency. Anti-majoritarian is right? a little strong. Do you, do you think the electoral college is, is not? Because usually um, the, the candidate who wins the popular vote wins also the electoral college. But recently, as the country's been divided between red and blue America, which I think first appeared in the 2000 election, that Remember, mm -hmm, not an uncontroversial uh, right, election. Right, exactly. Yep. Um, where Bush uh, lost the popular vote, Gore won it, but he won the Electoral College. Right. Um, I think since we've split into the, partis the partisanship is not only a matter of ideology and worldview, but geography. Yeah. And there's a split between the cosmopolitan parts of the country, the coasts. Yeah, it's and not north and south thing. anymore. It's not it's north. Now even it's within Fulton, states, right? right? It's Fulton County and, yeah, and, and, right. and, the, and a lot of the rest of Georgia. Rural versus It's Philly urban. and Pittsburgh where I come from. Yeah. Philly and Pittsburgh. You know, you drive from between the ride between Philly and Pittsburgh. Yep. You might as well be in rural Georgia. Right. You know? Yeah. So the yep. split is no longer regional. Uh, it's it's now almost it's almost neighborhood against neighborhood, yeah. county against sure. a county. And, and so I think with that, with that, um, geographical split um, uh, and, uh, and um, that uh, uh, that it's now more likely that a minority of votes will lead to an electoral college victory than was before. Before 2000, it hadn't happened since 1884, I believe. Yeah, well, it had only when, happened when twice Grover Cleveland right? won the popular vote. Yeah, in, 1876 yeah, and, and 1884. Benjamin Harrison, I think. Right. I hope I'm getting that right, Stan. Yeah, no, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, but now it's, it's happened, as you yeah. say. It happened in 2000. Well, and, and it could very and, – and, you know, now the Republican Party, which, which sort of sees the demographics are working against them mm -hmm. in terms of 
when you think of the whole population. Right. Not in terms of the Senate, not in terms mm-hmm. of Congress, but in terms of uh, uh, the way the demographics are moving. They're kind of now, I think, and I don't, I have to see if this ever happened before. Maybe the the pre-Civil War Democratic Party might have seen itself as uh, irrevocably moving towards becoming a minority party uh, or entra- entrapped as a minority party. And they certainly took advantage of some of the anti uh, Majoritarian, the limits on on majoritarianism in the Constitution, the three-fifths vote, uh, the three-fifths compromise is a good example of that. But that's the only other example I can think of a party uh, purposely, deliberately uh, trying to deploy the minoritarian features of the Constitution to gain power. So when I interviewed some people from the Trump campaign in 2016, they told me they knew they couldn't win the popular vote. Their whole strategy was to win the electoral college, and they succeeded. I, you know, I don't know, but I can't give chapter and verse on every election stand, but I've never heard that before. Well, and you recall um, on January 6th, 2021, as the Senate gathered to um, count electoral college votes, Mitch McConnell, and this is before uh the the um the riot mitch mcconnell stood up and said you know joe biden has won the electoral college and we as a party have to stand behind it because that is probably our path back to power after this election um as you say that i i was stunned by that for someone to come out and say that really you know we we can sort of uh we being the republican party we can count on having to use the electoral college that's a great observation as a as a as a vehicle great example of what we're talking about yeah and you're right it's it's uh it's um it 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 it, it's so when i say it's anti-majoritarian uh it it certainly had not been a big deal really until the 21st century and now it seems to have come back into play right it was a big deal before the civil war yeah absolutely but uh, but it definitely has come back yeah into into Um, power and you know the 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 uh, hardball politics stand now involved in judicial nominations mm-hmm. too mm-hmm. um that is is relatively new i oh, think yeah. yeah i mean um it was um uh with the with the robert bork nomination right. sort of began so yeah. we get a verb he was borked <laughs> right yeah uh, but now right. that's become true of every nomination sure. yep and also manipulation uh so there was never uh, i think a norm that if a, a open if a vacancy occurred at the beginning of an election year as as was the case in uh, 2016, right. that you had to wait till the election. Yeah. Dis- that goes against the whole idea of the courts, which are supposed to be independent somewhat of politics, right? Well, and, and of course, Mitch McConnell based that on, he said that, you know, there's this long tradition that when a vacancy opens and Congress is a different party than the president, you don't nominate anybody. I certainly I think, never I think heard he was making that one up. Well, <laughs> I, you know, this is what a lot of people have and, said. And it's then very what strange. would happen with Amy Corbett, Corbett Barrett? Yeah, right. She right. Was, she, uh, that was very close to the election. Yeah, and they pushed her through. Yeah, so eight days before. I yeah. think that begins to take on and the filibuster. Yeah, you know the filibuster. A lot of people, my, my students, when they first come into my class and I educate them about, they think the filibuster is part of the Constitution. Yeah, it is not. Yeah. As you and I know. Right. It's not part of the Constitution. Part of the Senate. So, but but people have said that Senate is yeah. anti-majoritarian, right? So, because it, it's yeah. the way it's the way votes are taken and needing yeah. needing. Yeah, you know, I mean Wyoming uh, has two. Two senators. California has two senators. Exactly, right? and Wyoming has what about yeah. six hundred thousand people? Yeah, and that yeah. was the big fight, one of the biggest fight at the Constitution, how the Senate should be chosen. In, in the convention, sure. Yeah. Madison wanted both houses based on. He did. Yeah. yeah, he thought he, the, he thought the whole game was up after the Connecticut. Right. Was, right. The Connecticut Compromise. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. 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 And it's after that, by the way, that Madison and the other nationalists began to push for a strong presidency, because they thought they had, with the loss of the Senate, they had to have a first citizen mm-hmm. to hold the country together. So. Uh, even though this is a podcast about history, and we've discussed a lot of it, and a lot of political history here, um, I, I do want you to put on your political science cap for a moment uh, and peer into the future, <laughs> oh my right? God. which is something we don't do. I'm not going to as a historian. But, I mean, you must get this question, too, and that is, where is this all going? Mm. Based upon what you know about the past, what you know about politics and political history, yeah. um, y- y- are, are we in a dangerous moment, or is this all just going to settle down the way, for instance, 1877 it yeah. did, and we got back to politics as usual? Yeah, but at the cost of the rights of African Americans. Right, right, yeah, so, at that time, sure. So th- I don't just say that loosely. I say it's going to be hard to get back to normal because we're not going to have another compromise of 1877. In because, the past, there's, because there's no vital center. Right? There's no vital, in the past, we've gotten back to normal by putting these 
and they're not always about race, right? They're mm. about they're about gender. Uh, uh, they're they're about uh, L, uh, L, LGBTQ rights. Uh, in the past, we've been able to put social issues to the side and get back to business, if you will. And Americans, you know, it's a business is an important part of our culture. Calvin Coolidge said, "The business of the country is business." Right. Um, it's hard to do that now, Stan. I think um, the the uh, um, more uh, a rejection of compromise, a, a commitment to a kind of, um, um, I, I don't want to say, I don't know if I should say radical, but pretty extreme progressive and conservative views. Those are kind of baked in now to our politics. You know, I, I saw a poll a couple of days ago where 57% of Democrats and Democratic leaners have a favorable view of socialism. So, you know, everybody uh, talks about the extremism and the radicalization of the right. And I'm not saying what's going on on the left is the same. There is a bit of asymmetry. But there's radicalism going on on the left, too. People forget about Bernie Sanders, that Bernie Sanders came very close to getting the nomination. Mm. And he, he calls himself a socialist. Mm -hmm. He came very close to getting the nomination of a major party. Uh, and, and, you know, when you uh, that's... Um, pretty striking when you consider that before that, the largest term, uh, um, the, the largest expression of socialist support was when Eugene Debs Eugene ran Debs. in 1912, he won 6%. Right. That was considered a, a, a socialist, uh, you know, a strong sign. And incidentally, Eugene Debs ran for president from federal prison in we, 1920. We, have you have been having to remind people of this? And, oh, yes. And, and my wife said, Donald Trump can't really run, right? If he's, oh, yes. Oh, he can run from prison. Sure he can. He would love Eugene it. Eugene Debs did it, and he got almost a million votes. Yeah, I think he got 4%. Uh, 900,000 people yeah, voted for yeah, a socialist sitting yeah, in yeah, federal prison in yeah. 1920. So, so I think the polarization is is, is very deep, um, and it's affected both parties. Uh, I think that since the 90s, particularly the Democrats, have moved to the left. Um, if you if you read the Build Back Better, if you look at the Build Back Better bill that missed passing by, what, two votes in the Senate, passed the House pretty um, that's pretty close to the kind of democratic socialism that Denmark <laughs> has that Bernie Sanders praises. Huh? Now, I'm not saying that's bad, but I think insofar as polarization makes it difficult uh, for, uh, for, uh, for the country uh, to be a country, <laughs> to have some common ground. I, I think it's, it's, it's become very, it's, it's going to be very difficult for us to assume common ground. And if you look at the, a lot of people think the Republican Party will settle down when, when Donald Trump passes from the scene, if that ever happens. But the Republican Party, and I've done chapter and verse on, on this, looked at how state and local party organizations have been changed. The Trump presidency very deliberately took over all the state, uh, uh, st state party committees, including Massachusetts, where, where, they, got, where they beat the, very, the, the candidate of the very popular uh, Republican uh, governor and put in place a Trump uh, a Trump loyalist uh, named Steve Lyons, and he was re-upped <laughs> recently. So uh, the Republican Party has become the party of Trump, and if you look at all the people running for office, none of them really have strayed very far from Trump. And the guy who some people view as the heir apparent, Ron DeSantis, is kind of out-trumping Trump in, in, in Florida, attacking woke capitalism. Well, so, so, I think, so let me just say one th thing. Yeah. I think... Yeah. Polarization doesn't have a bad thing. From time to time, we have to have a reckoning and a serious debate. I hope it's not, you know, they all don't have to be as dramatic as a civil war. But a lot of people refer to our own time as a cold civil war. Cold civil war. You from use that to, phrase. From time to time, we have to think about the con our social contract and redefine it. I think what's mucking things up right now is the power of the presidency. That the presidency is so dominant. And it's a kind of polarizing institution. Because think of it, Stan. It's an either-or institution, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you didn't have a resurrection or whatever you want to call what happened on January 6th after the 2020, uh, uh, 2018 election or uh, when the Democrats took control of the House. You didn't have it after the 2022 election where the, the, the Democrats won some really key uh, elections. Um, but the presidency is an all or nothing institution and it has become the center of our democracy. And, and people uh, say, well, that was just Trump. Well, look at what look at Joe Biden's presidency, and there's been a uh, um, there's been a lot of um, uh, attention to doing things unilaterally, particularly mm -hmm. in response to the concerns. But do you, do you think do you think that if Joe Biden um, loses the 2024 election, that he will call the results into question and call upon fo followers to 
Oh, no, to, I don't. Yeah. I, I mean, don't, my, I don't, my no, next I, question I don't to you was to, yeah. how, how but I for everything you said about what's happening in the, the extremes, we both know, knowing history and yeah. political history, that never in our history of our country has a president ever doubted the it's outcome. It's the first time it's ever happened. And, and do you see that as a trend going forward? Are both parties going to accept that as the norm when they lose I think going that, forward? Or is that going to be something that goes with Trump? I don't think country will, if, if, if Trump wins, if he's the nominee, which it looks like he will be mm. now, in 2024, I can't see the Democrats storming the barricades. I do feel within the Democratic Party, as happened in, after 2016, they're going to think the election was rigged, and that's in that case by Russia and the FBI. Remember, there was a lot of, uh, there were a lot of demonstrations in the street with signs, you're not my president. Sure. So I'm, always I'm, been those. I'm not saying that's the same as an insurrection. I'm just saying yeah. there's a feeling on the left, driven by the progressive wing of the party, Bernie Sanders as its prophet, and on the right with Trump as its prophet, that feels the system is rigged against them uh, and feels our institutions are unfair and outdated. Uh, and I think that's the greatest danger to contemporary American politics. Mm, okay. But I'm not, I, I, I would not say that the parties are exactly the same and the polarization yeah. is the same. I would love to talk to you about why we only have two parties in this country. Is it because of the Electoral College? Is it because it's a winner-take-all game? I've had other yeah, people tell me that. I think, yeah, I think um, two reasons, that we have first-past-the-post systems. And yep. there's some political science theory, I forget yeah. what it's called, that says when you have, don't have PR, proportional representation, but first-past-the-post, like England does, right. okay, then you're likely to have a two-party system. The other thing, though, that makes us different from England, where they have had strong third parties, Fourth parties. Or four parties, yeah, sure. Fifth parties, mm -hmm. Scotland, mm -hmm. uh, is the presidency. Yeah. So the presidency is the prize, and it's become more of the prize uh, in the course of the 20th and 21st century. Which begs the question that I, uh, and, and we're you're almost out of time, but just if you. Oh, if, I don't believe that. If you can answer this question <laughs> in a few minutes. We've only been talking five minutes. <laughs> it does beg the question. So the American colonies, right, we, we came out of the British political tradition. Right. The mainland, 13 mainland North American colonies, despite where those populations came from, we know that there were Germans, mm -hmm. right, in Pennsylvania, et cetera, et cetera, Dutch in New York. But our political traditions were English and British. But yet America never even remotely considered having a parliamentary system. Why? Yeah, there have been um, intellectuals like Woodrow Wilson <laughs> who have proposed that, um, but we've never— there's never been a serious effort to create. It's, been, it's never been a part of our tradition. Even yeah. in the colonial period, yeah. we had we had um, royal governors, right, appointed even even in the proprietary mm. period. They all all the colonies eventually became a royal colony yeah. with a governor appointed by the king. Yeah. So why didn't we though, when yeah. we became states, follow? Uh, yeah. How did we become a republic it's, instead of a parliamentary it's a, system? It's a boy. That's a. That's, you can't answer the question in two I, minutes. I, I'm going to try, but, but that's a foundation. You and I could talk about this for an hour. I know. But there was one of the biggest debates at the Constitutional Convention was over whether to have a unitary executive mm -hmm. or a plural executive. Yeah. Uh, and people who were uh, supportive of a unitary executive, you can guess who they were. Um, Hamilton at the lead of that. Right. People, but there were some people opposed, and, and at the lead on the other side was uh, Edmund Randolph from Virginia who argued that this was the fetus of monarchy <laughs> to have a single executive. It was dangerous that there was some safety in numbers. And it was a very heated debate, mm -hmm. but the so-called Federalists won out in that debate over the Anti-Federalist. Uh, and, in and, part because they and, all and, knew Washington would be the first president, right? I, and I, they trusted him with power. I think, I think Washington's presence is absolutely essential. And who was the president of the Constitutional Convention? Right. George was sitting George, right there. George, Never opened his mouth, yeah. but had a tremendous influence and, over the proceedings. And the other thing is, one of the things we um, took pride in, and, and you can see this in Thomas Paine, um, is being that we were going to develop to be a large and diverse country mm -hmm. in a way that was not true of Europe. Uh, and a country um, that, that celebrated individualism rather than class or, or feudal, whatever, wherever a feudal system puts you. Aristocratic. Mm -hmm. So rather atomistic and diverse. And uh, even the anti-federalists agreed with that kind of country, which the, the people at, who um, were at the founding really looked, took the long view in a way that's quite fascinating and rare, I think, but saw that we were large and diverse then, but we were going to become much larger and more diverse, felt that you had to have what they called a first citizen 
somebody who could draw people to the center of the country, could make the national government more than something that was just a vast vagueness. And so even the Anti-Federalists felt that we had to take seriously the idea of a presidency. So I think um, the fact um, that uh, we had uh, Washington was, was sitting there, I think that's, we can't underestimate that. And if we hadn't, and if Washington had not kind of, you know, established certain norms, the presidency may, we may have moved back to a kind of parliamentary system then. I think by the end of the Washington presidency, the presidency is a, a reality that's not going to be eliminated. Mm -hmm. That, that mm -hmm. and the character of the country, uh, which, and, and, the, and the size of the country and its diversity, Madison uh, um, uh, um, says is, is one of the great virtues of America, and it's going to allow us to be a republic rather than a democracy, so the majority will have to respect the individual in ways that wouldn't happen if we had a more direct democracy. And, and that, which is a great answer to that question, Sid. It, so the, the, the final question is this. On the cover of your book, which our <laughs> listeners can't hear, what happened to the Vital Center, at least on the paperback, um, there is a picture of January 6th. Mm -hmm. There's a picture of the crowd out in front of the Capitol. Wouldn't the founders at the Constitutional Convention have said, if you ever do have participatory democracy, which, as you pointed out a minute ago, the mm -hmm. Constitution has many guardrails in it to mm -hmm. prevent. There was mm -hmm. not universal manhood or womanhood suffrage in 1787. Wouldn't they have looked at that picture and said, we could have told you that that ultimately is where democracy yeah. goes? Or am I wrong? I, <laughs> I, I always have some, what would the founders say? Yeah. I would have a little trouble getting into But that. isn't that why they think, fear democracy in part? I think that part? is why they fear democracy. And you know, it's not that When a demagogue or somebody like that, and not, I'm not saying Trump is or isn't, but yeah. when somebody can come along uh, and yeah. manipulate what, the think, people, quote. Yeah, I think where are your, your, where is the filter? When the filtration system's gone, this is what mm -hmm. you're going to have. Mm -hmm. And it's not just theoretical, Stan, because what was the proximate event that led to the Constitutional Convention? Shays Shays Rebellion. Rebellion. Right. Led by a populist right. for, uh, revolutionary war hero, right. Daniel Shays, mm -hmm. who was who was um, led a, res a resurrection in, in uh, Massachusetts, was, which was closed down the debtor courts. It was a fight over over debts. Yep. Uh, and was heading to the to the armory in Springfield when finally. Um, when, when finally a, um, uh, a, some entrepreneurs were able to raise enough money to put together a militia to put, put down the, the rebellion. Um, but that, after th that, was the, that was what, uh, you know, people like Washington and Madison, they, they felt we needed, because of the problems that, that had, had uh, cropped up in the article, articles of convention, trade, you know, was too chaotic and stuff. Sure. Far, we, we, we had no foreign policy, so to speak. Uh, much to speak. And it was a parliamentary system without a prime minister, basically. Yeah, yeah the right? Articles of Confederation. Yeah, we, yeah. yeah we, didn't, we could have talked about <laughs> we that. We sure there. could. Uh, yeah. that, that was a little bit more like a parliamentary. Congress, you know, the assembly was really uh, mm -hmm. was really dominant. But With no powers what, to tax. But yeah. this is what yeah. persuaded kind of the, 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 the country, not just the elites like mm. Washington Madison, that we needed to strengthen the national government. And, and, and when you have a riot, um, when you have emergencies, as, as the... Um, as the political theorist Carl Schmidt argued, that's when people look to executive power. That's when people look to a constita constitutional dic dictator. So, uh, so I, I, I think um, I, I think th um, that you're 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 probably right that the founders would react to that, saying this is the chickens coming home to roost for your century-long development of pure democracy. You're you're weakening the the guardrails of American. Uh, politics, and I, I think what makes that more than theoretical is that they were, the country was so astounded by Shays, Shays Rebellion. Mm -hmm. Well, we could, we could continue this conversation for probably another hour, but this has been terrific. Um, our guest has been Sidney Milkus, political scientist from the University of Virginia. Sid, yeah. thanks so much. It's been so fun. I hope we get a chance to do this again. The hardest working producer and engineer in show business, the czar of our Tallahassee office, as well as the captain of the GHS ferret legging team is our very own Brendan Cannonball-Krellen. Our director of communications and the GHS ambassador from Long Island one-man damn Yankees fan club is Keith Pinstripes Stragero. The GHS empress of the historical marker, don't call them monuments division, is Elise 135 words Butler. The captain of the GHS Italian wine tasting team is Rebecca Beerstein Bratina. Our GHS director of bean counting is Greg Cancel Checks Durkin, assisted by our accounts payable administrator, Amelda Checks. 
The director of the GHS Civil War Reenactors Division is Nate Stonewall Jackson Peterson. Our off the beaten path fact checker is Ella Fino. Our director of employee loyalty is Upton Leftis. The off the beaten path bungee jumping instructor is Hugo First. Our staff layoff specialist is Harry Verderci, assisted by layoff counselor Oscar Lavista. Our Russian intern is Igor Beaver. Our staff director of Three Stooges Studies is Lee Iapoka. Dr. Todd Gross's personal eBay specialist is Selma Junkoff. And our Off the Deaton Path martini mixer is Olive Twist. You can find our podcast anywhere you can find podcasts. You can find out everything about the Georgia Historical Society at georgiahistory.com and the Georgia History Festival at georgiahistoryfestival.org. Be sure and like Off the Deaton Path on Facebook as well. Please also visit deatonpath.georgiahistory.com for Off the Deaton Path and check out Dispatches from Off the Deaton Path, my blog, and similar vote-canceling podcasts like this one. Stay safe, stay strong. I'm Stan Deaton with the Georgia Historical Society. As always, thank you for listening.